Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Lance Weigenberg, a historian of Japan at Penn State. Today we'll be talking to H. Yumi Kim about her book, Madness in a Family, Women, Care and Illness in Japan, which came up with Oxford University Press in 2022. Madness in a Family examines how the family in Japan, and especially women, uh, came to be seen as a natural provider for care of care for those suffering from mental illness. The experiences and fascinating economy of care which Kim uncovered have long been obscured by the voices of male psychiatrists, state officials and lawmakers. In a series of vivid examinations of key sites of psychiatric interventions in Japan, or what uh, Kim called sites of encounter, Medicine and Family uncovers this often marginal narrative in the history of psychiatry. The book examines the way psychiatry both undermined and engaged the older cosmology of what we will now call mental health. Far from supplementing the family as a site of care, psychiatrists, jurists, and other Westernized professionals made the home the legally sanctioned primary site of care. Psychiatrists, furthermore, did not opt for a clean break from the past, undertaking ethnographic studies, accommodating and translating all the notions of health, such as folk spirits, into medical parlance, thus making the transitional moment of medicalization a complex and contradictory process. Decoupling the history of mental health from uh, the discipline and institutional psychiatry, medicine and families reveals the power and fragilities of gender, kinship, and care in the creation of different modes of caring for and understanding of mental illness that persists to today. Uh, Dr. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Dr. Kim, mind if I call you Yumi? You can, yes, uh, that's please. perfectly okay. fine. So, Yumi, can you tell us what, uh, beginning, what, what brought you to this story, and more maybe about your own background and the background of uh, the beginning of this book? Yes, of course. Um, I really began this research, uh, you know, as most of us do who are working on dissertations, usually in the initial stages, uh, it's challenging to think about what one might choose as a topic for the dissertation. And I had an advisor who suggested to me that I simply free associate and think about something, a question, a topic that I would want to spend a few years, perhaps even a decade thinking about. And the question I landed on at the time was, I realized I was very interested in how people care for each other under extremely difficult circumstances. And although the question for me began with care, in the course of writing the dissertation, care actually just completely slipped away because I I had a hard time finding or at least being able to trace histories of care within these biomedical and psychiatric archives that I was using. But it's interesting to think now that my initial question was really about notions of care and caregiving and care as not just a, um, you know, sort of supportive, sustaining um, set of practices, but also care 
you know, in its various dimensions, especially more sort of negative, even violent ones, um, that that sort of all came back towards the end when I was finishing the manuscript. So I began with care. It got lost in the middle, and then I came back to it. And in terms of my own background, in you know graduate school and the dissertation was really the first time that I was doing anything related to East Asian studies. Um, before that, I had, you know, I had been really kind of deeply entrenched in French and German history and literature. And so what really kind of drew me in, um, in, in terms of the topic of my book, um, especially about mental illnesses, was when I landed on certain primary sources um, in the course of doing research. And really the two sources were the Fox Spirit ethnographic surveys conducted by the psychiatrist that I talk about in chapter one, and then the photographs of the confinement cages that I talk about in chapter two. Um, so I, I tend to gravitate towards sources that I find very puzzling or sometimes also very frustrating and then build from there. So really, it, you know, it's, it's really those two sets of sources um, that became the, the origins of this research. Yeah, and you can see it right in the beginning. I, 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 the way I sometimes read book is just write the, read the first couple of lines of introduction and kind of trying to see if, like, if it, it speaks to me or not. When you, uh, and, it, and, and your book starts with a really compelling story. It's, it's, really, um, it's really about the young woman, eight, 1891, I think, who was suffering from uh, fox attachment, Kitsunevsky, and then, like, she has putting in a cage, as you say. She encountered a religious healer, a gynecologist, psychiatrist. And I think it really encapsulates a lot of the book. And also, I was thinking about the title. There's both there's women, care, and illness, all of it in, in the story. Can you tell us a little bit about the story? Uh, um, and why did you choose to start the book with it? So the story is, in fact, a kind of imaginative exercise. And I say imaginative because it's actually not the story of one woman that I trace. But as I say in the book, it's a composite or a combination of different parts of different stories shared across kind of a spectrum of women from different social classes, different uh, locations throughout Japan, um, different ages. And in bringing these kind of scattered pieces together as one story, it's my... Um, it, it, this sort of constitutes my effort to show what the archives tend to obscure, which is that there are these stories of women, but and also men, um, but people suffering from different forms of mental, emotional afflictions who are trying out different remedies, who are being exposed to the their own family's responses and fears and concerns about madness or, or forms of madness. And so I tell the story of the young woman who is, again, an, a kind of a fictional construct in order to really capture what it is that I'm trying to do in the book. Um, which is to highlight that which is obscured in the archives. And that's the role of both family and women in not just managing and caring for uh, mental afflictions, but also in creating sort of gendered understandings of mental illness or mental affliction. I, yeah, it's, it's, I really like the way you open both of, because, you know, it's, you know, people read books, write books, you know, we always read books through the eyes of writer, like what can we quote unquote steal? And I think in terms of structure, it does really, really good work in drawing the reader in, uh, drawing the reader in and, and really kind of touch all, all the main points. And one of the main points I think that I got, got from it is, as you can, as you said, like, even though in our archive we get the wrong picture, the psychiatrists are the one who are leaving the records. Um, Psychiatry is just one of a few options, right? Because psychiatry did not really take over. I mean, you write that, and we're quoting here, uh, psychiatry in the 20th century Japan generated a new language of madness, but failed 
to become dominant institutions to exert authority over madness. And this is an important point, right? I mean, I guess that's how I, I read it. I mean, the, this is not how we usually read the history, right? Yeah, that is an important point. And it's also indicative of a kind of turning point in my own thinking. So the book really could have gone in one of two directions. It could have pursued actually this line of thinking about the failure of a set of you know, knowledge formations and institutions, um, psychiatry that is. The book could have been about the, the sort of what I say is the, is the failure of psychiatry to become the dominant institution. And I realized, though, the other direction in which I could take it, though, is to then talk is to talk instead about, well, what were all the other things going on, all the other available either services or unavailable services? And that's when I started to realize just how important families were and both metaphorically and literally families as providers of care, but also families as sources of ideas and practices about how you take care of people who seem mentally or, or emotionally disturbed. Um, and, and, you know, there are different ways you can think about failure or success of certain institutions or institutionalized bodies of knowledge like psychiatry. And it's usually some combination, you know, of like, do the, does the content, you know, of the knowledge, do the ideas have traction? Is there political support for it? Is there financial support for it? What are the kind of popular imaginings or sort of uses of, say, a psychiatric um, kind of apparatus? Uh, there's also, of course, you know, commercialization. Like, can are people able to consume this stuff? Like, can it be sold for profit? And in the case of psychiatry in Japan, you know, it did have a, kind of bits and pieces of all of the above factors that I just mentioned. But there's a way in which, you know, just to take the example of what happens in the kind of you know, support from the state that the psychiatrists get, they get it to certain, a, a certain extent, right? The, the state is paying for these new departments of, you know, within medicine being developed at their, you know, various imperial universities. And psychiatry is a kind of subset of different medical schools that are forming. But at the same time, you know, the, the state and the psychiatrists have very different visions about how to manage people who are considered mentally ill. And in fact, the state really has no interest in caring for them. They're very interested in getting them off the streets, whereas the psychiatrists are actually genuinely interested in providing medical care. So there's there's a way in which it's it's a very complicated story and one that I, I think um, I think there is actually a scholar right now who is working on uh, sort of really kind of deeply going into the the idea of, you know, psychiatry being a marginal or marginalized institution in Japan at this time. But my my book gets at kind of the the other side of that, which is, OK, fine, if it was marginal, then what was actually going on? What were people turning to? Yeah, and, and I really... I kind of really like the fact that he didn't go. This is actually the easy way in, like to go to the state in the archive, right? Deal with the state and psychiatrist. But he actually went the other way, like the psychiatrist uh, and the state and the family is a triangulation. And it's really, I think, important to notice because usually, I guess, the usual way of, of reading it is the psychiatrist and the state are seen as one one group. But it's really good to see that there's a lot of different interests. And also the psychiatrists are not like evil westernizers trying to Right. They also generally wanted to to heal, but the state, as you say, wasn't interested in healing, right? I mean yeah. yeah, for the for the most part, I mean, really it's a it's a question of money, right? The the Meiji state in the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, there's a lot of stuff that they have to spend money on, and this is not a priority. Social welfare in general is not a priority. And so the psychiatrists really struggle because they do have the kind of imprimatur of the state, right? Like the stamp, the official stamp of approval, but there's no money, right? And there's no, there's no, um, there isn't consistent backing and, and psychiatrists too. And this isn't just in Japan at the time, but elsewhere, I mean, you know, in Europe, in the U S psychiatry is a marginalized 
uh, knowledge formation within the broader what is you know kind of emerging as the biomedical sciences or or the study of medicine. And so this kind of marginalization is happening actually throughout. There's you know throughout the world. There's a way in which we now see psychiatry as this like really established part of uh, of medicine of you know treatment, um, but that that was not the case at in the late 19th century or even in the early 20th century. Yeah, I, I deal mostly with post-war psychiatry, and again, it, it's very easy to forget uh, that it's not an established. Uh, it's not an established kind of profession at all. And in Japan, psychiatry is very much a clinical thing, right? I mean, it's only deal with the most clinically depressed, clinically suicidal, and so on and so on. And most other things are basically thrown into the family and mostly on women, which is not just in terms of psychiatry, right? I mean, most of Japanese welfare state with welfare policies put a lot of uh, emphasis on the family, read women <laughs> doing the work, right? Exactly. And so part of the the story that I'm trying to tell in the book is one of a kind of contradiction or, or not maybe not contradiction, but something sort of unexpected that happens is that you do have the introduction of psychiatry and it does get a lot of attention because it's fancy. It's new, right? It's derived from European uh, developments in, in the medical sciences. But despite the introduction of psychiatry, you not only get a, a kind of continuity of domestic care, but the domestic care, family-based care, is actually intensified. And I try to show in the book that that intensification goes on through mostly a kind of um, institutionalization through law and through bureaucratic procedures. So you do have the family being held responsible, as you said, for many things, not just the mentally ill, but really anyone who is sick, incapacitated in any way, cannot take care of themselves, needs support, the family is going to be called upon. And that's legally enforced through the civil code. Whereas before it was customarily enforced, right? Like it was done through custom. It was done through sort of a set of social norms. And then that's legally codified through the civil code in 1898. And then uh, again, in terms of mentally, I mean, law specific to those who are mentally ill, there's a law that's passed in 1900 called the custody law that also further enforces and legalizes familial responsibility. So it makes it possible to actually track down well, who should be in charge of this individual who is being kept at home? You know, who is the legal custodian who assumes all legal and financial responsibility? So there's a way in which these things are happening simultaneously. Like, yes, you have psychiatry, but at the same time, and ironically, perhaps, you also have a, a kind of further institutionalization of family-based responsibility. Yeah, and it's fascinating, but I want to just kind of go back a little bit uh, and examine another uh, aspect of this. Again, your first site of encounter um, in Chapter 1, and maybe just take a break from, from the break a little bit and said that I really like how you did this as sites of encounter because it's not quite a chronology, but, but it is in the same way, right? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about why you chose this different sites rather than go to chronology. Yes, that's. I really like this question because it gives me a chance to talk about um, something that I I was really trying to do in the book, and I'm not quite sure if if I was able to. Um, but I really wanted to tell a non teleological story, and I also wanted to tell a story that really troubles our understanding of sort of transitions or shifts from A to B, right? Moment A to moment B, or, you know, in, in the case of, say, the first chapter, which is on the Foxbury, it's a transition, a, a transition that the psychiatrists are claiming, right? Or, and other observers too, and other commentators, they're saying there are no longer Fox spirits that attach to human bodies. We now have hysteria. So there are these claims made to certain kinds of transitions happening, and those transitions are often phrased and framed in terms of modernization or modernity. But modernization and modernity are words that I do not use in the book at all. 
And the reason I, I don't use them is because I don't think those terms and those concepts mattered as much to the people I look at in the book, in, in, in their everyday lives. And so part of the reason I choose sites of encounter is to try to amplify a sense of overlapping forms and sites of everyday life. And at the same time, even though, you know, a book, structurally speaking, even in the way that we read it, right, like we have to turn a page to get to the next page. So it's like this very linear progress. But I wanted to see if somehow I could structure the book so that you get a sense of really how these different sites are layered on top of one another, as opposed to us moving from, say, fox spirits to then cages to then hysteria, um, but maybe sort of more in the sense of um, a kind of, like if you could sort of think of the sites constantly sort of being in movement and, and overlapping, you know, I tried to create that sense while being you know, pretty constrained by the the limitations of of the genre, right? Like I'm not presenting this as a as like a, a Prezi or PowerPoint presentation or or a visual or, or like a video, right? Or or a film even. Um so I I don't know if if that if that worked. Uh but I will also say that I also really wanted to pay attention to specific locales within Japan and to not, as best as possible, to not take the nation as my, or at least the national community as my main framing device, which I think, you know, it. I am claiming, I am working on, obviously, a place that calls itself, you know, uh, the nation of Japan. Um, but I wanted to show that there is so much social, cultural, political differentiation, you know, within the the the, the national space um, of Japan. And so I thought maybe taking sort of discrete sites of encounter would be a way to do that. Um, and to to go back to what you were saying about you know psychiatrists and, and sort of decentering them, that is precisely what I try to do in each site of encounter is to either decenter or kind of relativize the psychiatrists, like put them in conversation with other kinds of people or other ideas or or you know other sources of understandings about madness um, and, and show the ways in which they all interface. Yeah, and I want to also ask about transnationalism, but like we can maybe go back to this. I want to go maybe jump to the second side of encounter, home confinement, and also do you say you're not doing a PowerPoint, but you have some really really striking visuals here. And uh, so I was thinking about the, the series of visuals, page seventy six to to eighty eighty one, the pictures of the cages, right? Uh, I want to ask ask them, and you know, home confinement was legal until. Like the fifties, I think fifty or fifty-one, right? And can you tell us a little bit more? I mean, I was really striking by those images. I mean, first of all, you can tell us a little bit more about the images, um, uh, and also, I mean, it shows women in all of them, right? I think all but one show women. Can you tell us a little bit home confinement and the gender aspect of it? Yes. Um, so the photographs of the confinement rooms that appear in my book are from these kind of excursions and reports that were taken and created by psychiatrists in the early 20th century. And there's one psychiatrist in particular who is kind of leading this project of looking into home confinement. And, and he's sort of considered the, the founding father figure of Japanese psychiatry. His name is Kure Shuzo. And Kure basically sends out both fellow psychiatrists, but also his medical students to different parts of um, Japan. Usually it's actually these medical students and doctors' hometowns. Um, they go, they go, they go back, you know, in, in, in the summer, for instance, and while they're back home, they're also doing this kind of ethnographic uh, research and data collection. And one of the things that they do is that they hire local photographers to take photos of the confinement 
um, rooms and cages. They're also drawing on police reports. And so I, I, and I was not able to find a definitive answer to this, but it is also possible that the police reports were including photographs um, that may or may not have been taken by the psychiatrist. Um, there's a kind of, uh, it, there's a sort of overlap between the police records and the psychiatric ones. And, and the photographs kind of, um, you know, come from that, that, that sort of merging of the, the, the two sources the photographs themselves, I go into more deeply in an article that I wrote based on this this uh, this set of materials on the photographs. Um, and what I chose to do in the book was to really talk about the gender dimensions of home confinement. And there are two gendered qualities that I, I emphasize. One is that home confinement as a practice and this moves us away a little bit from the photographs, but I'll get back to the photographs. Home confinement as a practice was made possible by women's physical and emotional caregiving labor within families. And that, I think, is the real sort of insight of this second chapter in the book, because this is something that no one has commented on, both in the, the historical materials themselves and also in the scholarship um, about Japanese psychiatry and about home confinement. And in some ways, women's labor is not really mentioned in any sources, whether primary sources or secondary sources, because it's taken for granted. Um, but it really is their labor that makes it so that you can even have someone living in a wooden cage built inside the home. The women are the ones who are, you know, uh, feeding, um, often bathing the people who are confined. They are also the ones who take care of the bureaucratic matters involved in home confinement, which, you know, beginning in the early 20th century, there are laws now in place about, you know, you have to write a petition to local authorities to confine. You have to, you know, th that petition has to go through like all the way up to the level of the prefectural governor. And so women are also engaged in a lot of these kind of mundane bureaucratic tasks that I consider as a part of their caregiving labor. And this leads to that second gendered component that I wanted to emphasize, and, and this has more to do with the photographs that you see in the book, which is that for the most part, it was not women who were confined in these cages. It's usually men. And it is difficult to explain that, even though I've gotten, I've gotten many questions about this before. Um, you know, why is it that there are more men who are confined? I think there, it's, it's a very thorny uh, set of issues here. You know, on the one hand, it is mostly men because men are considered to be, so the people who are confined, I should explain first, are people who are not just mentally ill or, or, are, or, or who seem, you know, um, mentally disturbed, but they are people who are both mentally disturbed and inflicting some kind of violence or aggression on either themselves or other people. So there's a need to kind of contain their movements, contain their behavior. And so the argue the the thing that you know is is sort of the obvious thing is you know some people I think will kind of essentialize and say, okay, so it's men who are confined because they're considered more violent. But what I think is also going on, or perhaps is even more significant, is that understandings of violence and what constitutes violence is deeply gendered. And so a woman who, so so these, the, the kind of transgressions that these people who are eventually um, confined, the men um, in particular who are confined, the understandings of what constitutes violence is very different for men than it, what it is for women. So for instance, some men are confined because they are mentally ill and because they have tried to break down the door of the, the police um, office nearby or like the police box. And, and, and so that is considered a kind of political crime, a violent political crime, whereas women are not acting in those ways. And so it, you don't see a single case of a woman being confined because she has acted in a way that is understood as a, a form of kind of political violence. Um, women are also seen as um, 
more so than men, um, they they are seen as um, more, hmm, how should I explain this? My sense from the psychiatric materials is that even if women are doing the same action as the men who end up being confined, so for instance, like throwing a bowl at a family member, within the family, the the kind of the scale of the of the aggression or the kind of quality of the violence is different is very um uh, it's differently interpreted by family members when a woman does it it's not it's not understood in this it's not understood as being at the same sort of scale of violence as it as the men are so this isn't i think a matter of well men are more violent and women are less but rather that they're aggressions or their transgressive behaviors are being interpreted differently. Um, so that's to say that you see a very particular curation of images in my book because I pick out the ones to include in my book that are not actually all that common in the the, the archival materials. Meaning I have, and, and, and this is what I talk about actually in the article about the way in which the curation of images has a lot to do with the kinds of stories we tell and the story I wanted to tell was one that really emphasized women's caregiving labor and the fact that there are that that this sort of um, that the presence of women has been obscured, um, and, and so that's why you see a lot of the women. But you might notice that um, the picture of uh, the woman who is who is confined, she's actually not sitting inside the confinement page. This is on page eighty-two. And this mentally disturbed woman is also not actually placed in a private home. It's not her own residence. She's actually in a public shelter that is built for people who are called um, sick wanderers. And so this is also a kind of anomalous case. And I try to highlight in the chapter that these are anomalous cases, but they are also the cases that scholars and researchers have not given much attention to. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off yeah those are really amazing and they're they give such an air of melancholy uh when when you see them they're uh, yeah they're, they're quite striking um i do want to talk about women's mental health though and in terms of rule and something that i also wondered about in terms of rural versus urban uh and i'm moving to site number three chapter three uh hysteria in the marketplace were cages uh, a rural phenomena only? Um, I, I believe so. Uh, and when you come to the city, is there really a divide between like marketplace for the city, cages for the countryside, or is it more of a of a blur? Because there is a domestication aspect to, and you, as you show very well in chapter three, to to the urban setting as well. So maybe you can elaborate about this distinction. Yes. And I think this goes back to the structure of the book, of the sites of encounter. I I wanted to show that rather than there being a clear-cut division between rural and urban, that there is movement across that r- rural-urban divide, whether in the form of people actually moving, like in that opening anecdote, the kind of imaginative exercise Um in, in the same way that a person might say be born in a rural area and and then later in life move to an urban area, there's a kind of porousness um, between that boundary. And when 
it comes to something like hysteria, of course, there is also, as you say, sort of a, a blurred quality to the movement of, of ideas and, and sort of, um, you know, characteristics attributed to, you know, those who have hysteria. In terms of the marketplace as well, you know, I, in chapter three, I talk about the kind of creation and expansion of a commercial marketplace full of different kinds of services, right? Therapeutic services, different forms of medicine, um, different also, uh, you know, different kinds of discourses about mental illness and mental affliction. And that, of course, permeated rural areas as well, because those, you know, that print material is also reaching and sometimes is targeted towards uh, women uh, living in rural areas. That said, there is something very particular going on in urban areas. Um, And I try to highlight this in chapter three by looking at different sites or um, rather maybe I should say um, different and new places where people can go to get therapeutic services. And I think this is something that is not... um, it's just not talked about as much among scholars simply because the materials really lead us towards like, let's look at mental hospitals um, or let's, you know, look at just home confinement uh, cases, which uh, yes, you're correct to say that they were physically, you know, just kind of unfeasible in, in urban areas. There just was no room to build cages. And so oftentimes if you had to contain someone, um, you would actually send them to family who lived in the countryside rather than try to build a cage for them in, you know, there is the option in urban areas to also send them to a psychiatric hospital, or sometimes they're not even called psychiatric hospitals. You could send them to a general hospital and, and have, um, people confined in that way, um, but there is a there is a kind of like I said, sort of porous or blurred um, quality to the movement of ideas, especially about hysteria, um, and, and you see this later in the 20th century too, and actually even to this day, um, in some ways, you know, like in the in the 50s and 60s, hysteria becomes. Or actually, maybe not. I think even further, um, further down the line, up until the '80s, hysteria is actually associated uh, or, or sort of evoked um, pretty frequently by rural women, um, which which is interesting because it's and it kind of counters what I'm highlighting in the third chapter, which is the association of hysteria in the urban marketplace. Yeah, and 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 I want to go back to hysteria and women and their marketplace in a minute, but I want to move to side four because in here also there's another even more complication because as we talked about before, about women being violent, men, women being violent, but hysteria, women, the marketplace in the court, it also plays out very differently, right? You, when you, when, when it's your fourth side, the courts, right? Does, do you do see, violent women, right, poisoners and, and the like, there's this mystique of the woman murderer. How does this challenge the other role of women, the other way that women were uh, sexualized, gendered, uh, treated as, for example, caregivers? Yeah, so you're, you know, it's, you're right to um, say that the, so really the first two chapters and a little and a little bit in the third as well is really about the kind of caregiving responsibilities and labor of women and then you know in the third and fourth chapters i shift to think more about well what is happening to these women who are expected to provide so much care within the family um uncompensated unrecognized taken for granted And so in the fourth chapter, when I'm looking at the ways in which women are being, you know, they're on trial for having committed violent crimes and they're on trial and their lawyers um, are using um, what I call the the menstrual psychosis defense, which, which is that in order to defend these women to show that they are not fully responsible for their crimes, Lawyers are arguing arguing that there was menstruation induced mental instability, and 
so in this case, it's it's really showing the ways in which, especially at both sort of the discursive and social levels, you can you can interpret you know, women and and what they might be doing or what kinds of symbols they're serving as in whatever way. I mean, the men who are writing about them, right? Like they they just do whatever they want. Like they will just fantasize in every which direction. You know, on one page, you know, a woman is a a kind of like sorceress figure who is to be condemned. And then on the next page, you know, she's like this um, calm, emotionally available caregiver. And so I actually wanted in the fourth chapter to, as as much as possible, on the one hand, recognize that there is this sort of like discursive fantasizing that goes on. Um, and that's the nature of the materials that we have to work with. But that within those materials, you also get glimpses of the actual words that women are using and the kinds of cultural scripts that women are developing at the time in their interactions with, say, male psychiatrists or male lawyers or jurists. And what I found really striking is that the women invoke the language and the sort of realm of family and kinship to try to understand what it is that's going on within them. So the lawyers and the psychiatrists are saying, well, they're on their periods. And so they're acting, you know, irrationally. And the women are saying, well, no, we're acting in the ways that we are because there are such severe stresses on our minds and bodies because of our familial either responsibilities or sometimes it's just like domestic, like things that are going on, you know, in the home or in their domestic lives, whether it be, you know, um, abusive lovers and and husbands or, um, uh, uh, you know, conflicts with neighbors. And so there's this interesting way in which for the women themselves, it really is about at least my understanding of what I can read, you know, um, what I can sort of read against the grain in, in the sources that we have available to us, it seems that their concerns, first and foremost, are about the everyday and about their their kinship and, and community ties and networks, which tend to get devalued. But for the women, this is what matters. And, and, and that's what I wanted to highlight in that fourth chapter while also showing how, like if in the first three chapters I've shown the ways in which family is so central, there is this moment, there are, there are sites though, where the family is totally um, in some ways, you know, the, the source of suffering and, 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 and the, and not a site of caregiving, but rather the opposite. Yeah, and I really like the way you do it because in my own work, um, which again deal most with the post-war, there's also something I noticed like it's almost no, no voices of patients at all. And uh, I found out that everything I deal with was written by elite men. Every single document I had in my hand was written by elite men. And I couldn't find n- neither gender aspect nor like the power dynamic between patients. And it's all kind of written through the words of elite men. And in a way... In psychiatry and psychology, I mean, psychological science as a whole, you don't really have women until the post-war writing, right? Yeah, you you rarely see you rarely see sort of first-person accounts or um, writings by by women scholars or or doctors. I could not actually find a single example of a, um, and, and they may have existed. Uh, And, you know, especially because there were many, many psychiatric nurses inside psychiatric hospitals. And so they would have had, they may not have had the same same level of training, um, but they would have had a kind of specialized expertise kind of developed through, you know, their everyday interactions with various patients. Um, But yeah, I, I have yet to find materials that really directly show us um, you know, a, a kind of more uh, sort of, you know, a diverse, a more sort of diverse, more differentiated set of experiences um, when it comes to understandings of, of, you know, psychiatry, psychology, mental illness. And so in some ways, you know, the book that I wrote is a book that I did not think was possible to write. 
Um, and methodologically speaking, the way I had to go about doing it is to really think about how do you take dominant archival historical sources and read them and kind of, you know, read them in ways that can highlight that very thing that they are actually obscuring. Um, so sometimes this meant very kind of, again, imaginative exercises where you shift the perspective of a document, for instance. Um, and, and that's what I try to do in that fourth chapter in particular. Um, and it also means, you know, thinking about, I think, actually history as a, as a discipline and as a method in a way that is less masculinized um, in this kind of reductive way, meaning, you know, it, it, we aren't all motivated by questions of objectivity, right? Like many of us are motivated by, by questions that have to do with, well, how can we get a fuller sense of what else might've been going on beyond what the archives are showing us? And I think we can access those things. It just takes a lot of creative reading strategies, interpretive strategies, um, and, and, and sort of grappling um, with our own assumptions, like coming into certain kinds of materials like the psychiatric or biomedical archives. Yes, and this is why also I was really interested in your methodology and the way you, you handle this uh, of my personal interest because there's something I also dealt with when in my own work and like kind of cutting through all, all this uh, elite male elite writing and it's trying to get the patient's uh, voices. Uh, and also in general, I thought it's really it's a really good exercise of how you deal with the bias of the archive in a systematic way. Like the whole book, in a way, is basically telling the archive, <laughs> you're wrong. <laughs> yeah. It is. It. I mean, or at least I think it's... Well, not wrong. I mean, right? It's like you only show one it's side. Partial. Right? Exactly. Partial. Yeah, you're partial. Exactly. It's yeah. a partial picture. But it's also... But I will say there is a kind of political politicized element to the argument in my book in that I am also saying that this is not a naive partiality, meaning it is not that the male elite male writers are simply naive and ignorant, but there is actually a systematic and sort of structural erasure of women's labor um, or women's understandings of, you know, the domestic um, implications of their illnesses. I am saying that the psychiatric archive, which is a deeply masculine archive, that it does erase those things. And that, so, so there is a, a, an active erasure going on, um, even if through just like sheer replication, right? Like the fact that anyone who wants to write about mental illness or psych has to go to the psychiatric archives. Um, and, and, and so I, I am sometimes a little bit I, you know, disturbed, like very concerned that even in our scholarship, we tend to replicate what the, the, the kind of structures and leading kind of questions and interests of the archival materials are. Um, I will say, though, that I did not begin this project thinking that I wanted to look at women and gender. And in fact, if you go look at my dissertation, there's it's it's both everywhere and nowhere meaning it's in the sources and it's in my materials, but I never actually analytically home in on questions of gender and women. And it was really only in revising the manuscript that I had to basically critically analyze my own writing and see the ways in which I was replicating some of what the psychiatrists do in kind of flattening out or, or um, erasing entirely what is actually there in the sources, which is instances and evidence of, for instance, women's caregiving labor. Yeah, and I'm very sympathetic to this kind of writing instead of, uh, you know, really laying out the theory, trying to work for the sources and trying to help the theory comes out of the sources above rather than just coming with like, I'm going to decolonize the archive. I mean, there's nothing wrong with doing this, right? But it just, I think as historians, we have to, at least disciplinary work the other way around, right? Work from the archive up rather than coming and uh, coming and trying to systematically apply our theory to the sources rather than trying to let our sources help or like feed into the theory and have this kind of uh, loop. Um, I want to kind of uh, 
break a bit of arbitrary here. I have a lot more, um, a lot more to ask about psychology and where is Freud and, and all of this stuff. But I want to ask about post-war briefly and what is the long-term kind of impact of this basically Meiji and Taisho story, right? Uh, how, how do you, how does a trajectories, issues, I mean, we talked a little bit about it, but how does it persist till today? What's mm-hmm. the long-term impact of this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think there are some really just fascinating continuities. And of course, that is not to say that what happened in Meiji is being replicated, but rather that what has what was happening in that turn of the 20th century moment, you know, late 19th century, early 20th century, I see that as planting certain seeds and 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 planting certain ways of thinking and framing and experiencing mental illness in gendered ways that then you you see again in a period that we consider radically different from the early 20th century which is the post-war period into you know the 70s and 80s 90s and onwards and so in the epilogue um I I I trace what is first a major structural shift which is that psych- psychiatric hospitals do become more uh, prevalent and accessible um, in uh, you know in 1950 and onwards, and psychiatric hospitals do become the sort of most common place in which you do get treated for severe mental illnesses. That said, in the epilogue too, I try to show though the ways in which if we focus too much on that structural shift we'll actually miss what are some really important continuities in the family being expected to provide care and especially women. And for the post-war period, this is where the anthropologists who work on questions of family and care and health um, have really illuminated so much for us. And in some ways, I consider my book the the kind of um, sort of the the sort of prehistory to what a lot of anthropologists have written about the post-war period, especially um, the uh, especially anthropolo- anthropological accounts of the way in which women are expected to kind of hold down, you know, the the sort of domestic sphere and how that is considered. Um, and you know, and that too is is a early twentieth century, late nineteenth, early twentieth century inheritance. But that takes on a particular shape in the post-war period that I talk about in the epilogue. And what ends up happening is that the family's degree of responsibility becomes such that the, the gendered aspect of it, the fact that it's really women who are being held responsible, morally, socially, culturally held responsible, if because they're not being legally held responsible, um, that that becomes even more intense in the post-war period, which I, I find just really, you know, it's both alarming and fascinating that you actually have, even with that major structural shift, um, because so much of psychiatric care is outpatient care in the post-war period, people are coming back home after they receive services. And then you also have the example that, you know, um, uh, of, of conditions like hikikomori, um, where there is a kind of uh, there's a way in which the home right is like always haunting us like it's it's always this sort of place of containment you know it, it evokes the cages idea um, and and so I think there are resonances between what I talk about in my kind of early 20th century story with the post-war um, I think there are historical um, connections there Um but it is something that, you know, if I were to, you know, like the, the kind of sequel to this book would be, you know, a, a kind of post-war um, focus. And, and I don't know, Ron, maybe that is the book that you will write for us. Uh, but, there, but there is a way in which there are these striking kind of disturbing continuities. One final continuity I'll also mention is this continued devaluation of the domestic sphere when it comes to the way people explain their mental illnesses. So the one example um, that I give in the epilogue is, um, you know, uh, when when men are uh, 
depressed, the common understanding from sort of the 90s onwards is that their depression is derived from their overwork, right? Like overworking in companies and in, you know, um, corporate settings, whereas women's depression is rarely understood um, as as deriving from, say, uh, a, a kind of biological form of depression. It's sort of seen more as um, uh, that, you know, like it has something to do with the way that they're perceiving the world or that, you know. Yeah. So Junko Kitanaka work and others. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We, I mean, and, and Junko Kitanaka has really talked about this. And, and that's where, I mean, and it's really her insights that I'm, um, I'm you know, uh, building on um, in, in the epilogue. But I think there's something that happens in terms of the ways, not just psychiatrists, but broadly, you know, socially, the norm is to be quite dismissive when women say that they are suffering because of issues that are going on in the home. Um, and, and I see the precedence for that in this earlier history that I trace. Yeah, it's fascinating. And um, yeah, and it's a lot to talk about in terms of sequels and books I will or will not write. Uh, yeah. Um, I actually, in my work, I work a lot on social workers, which is in, uh, social workers, which are almost 99% of them women. But this brings another gendered aspect of the woman social worker uh, in and her role. Again, there's a lot of care involved, but also different uh, different ideas of women in society as a whole. But uh, I want to ask you what is your sequel what is your next project and when can we have you back yes i'm uh i'm excited to be um done with this book and moving on although it's also very interesting to see the ways in which ideas and sources that i could not do full justice to in the book i i am bringing into the second project which is a project that looks at what I'm calling feminine religiosities um, in three different places. Uh, in a, the time period is similar, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, Okinawa, uh, Jeju Island in what is now South Korea, and then Northeast Japan or Tohoku. Um, and I'm tracing the ways in which practices that we usually call you know, shamanism or folk religion or um, uh, or folk practices. Um, I'm looking at the ways in which those the, that practitioners and and people sort of associated with and using um, these sorts of religious practices they are persecuted um, across the Japanese Empire, and at the same time there is in part because of persecution, there is a kind of formation of what I'm calling feminine religiosity, which is distinct from the kinds of um, officially recognized religions at the time, um, like Buddhism or Christianity, Shinto. Uh, so the second project is taking more of a, a religious history dimension, but the concerns about gender and women are still there. And the second project also does stem from a set of sources I found while doing research for the first book, um, which is, you know, these Okinawan women who are accused of acting as spirit mediums and their acts and words are interpreted uh, beginning in the teens and 20s as evidence of their different mental illnesses. Um, and so I'm not using mental illness as a frame in the second book, but I am trying to explore sort of similar questions about archives, you know, reading archives critically. How do we get at histories of women and gender um, that are not necessarily readily available to us? And so a lot of the, the, the sort of, you know, main kind of methodological thematic concerns are there, um, but in, in pretty different settings. Cool. I hope to have you here again to talk about this. It's amazing how much we always write the same book again and again, in a way, right? Yes, because because we really are, you know, we really are trying to figure out, I think, what are kind of like a core set of questions um, that are at the heart of both our work and our lives. And I don't think those core questions ever really, like, 
radically change, you know, they may take on different nuances throughout our lives. But, but I think we, we, you know, we, we struggle and sort of grapple with um, a kind of core set of questions. I can only agree. Thank you very much, Yumi. Thank you very much, Dr. Kim. Thank you for having us. It was great having you on the show. Yes, thank you very much. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.